Well, it's good to see everybody this wonderful morning. You all have a good weekend? Hope you had a good weekend and a good time together. Y'all, ladies and gentlemen, the day has finally arrived. It's our last day for Jonah, right? Hallelujah. We're excited. Uh, It reminds me of the popular phrase, all good things must come to an end. Now, uh, granted, I don't know how many of you out there would say it's been good, uh, but we can all at least definitively say it's coming to an end today, and I'm excited about that. We get to finish our series on Jonah. We'll be in Jonah chapter 4, and then as I said earlier, next week we get to start a new series related to our key convictions. Uh, Here's how I want to begin today. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are in the town of Tucson, Arizona, and as you get in a car, you decide to go on a little bit of a road trip, and you're going to head south, almost directly south, slightly west on a highway, and after you've been driving for about four hours, you're going to arrive at a small town in Mexico by the name of Nakazari. And I want to talk to you a little bit about Nakazari this morning. Uh, It's a town that I hadn't really heard much about, but began to do some research. And and their origins and kind of their history is somewhat fascinating. It it really began to flourish towards the end of the 19th century, late 1800s. And part of the reason it flourished is because of the mining industry and the nearby copper that was discovered. So they built these rail stations and, and these kind of mines and all these different things that kind of helped the town get established. Well, well, around that time, we get introduced to a young man by the name of Jesus Garcia. And, and Jesus was a guy that immediately began working with the railroad station that was near this town of Nakazari. And when he began to help, he kind of had an entry-level position, started as a water boy, then kind of made his way up to, to switch track, then to brake man, fireman, and then ultimately, he became uh, the chief engineer driver by the age of 20. Right? So he had a rapid success within this industry. And part of the reason for his success is he his hard work, his, his work ethic, but also he's just a likable guy. People were drawn to him. Very popular in a lot of different ways. Uh, stories are reported that he had a fiance by the name of Maria, and he was, I guess, somewhat romantic and was known to frequently serenade his fiance. And every time he did, he would bring in these local bands to help play the music whenever he'd sing to her. Guys, we need to step up our game. That's all I'm saying, right? Jesus knew what he was doing. And so on November 6, 1907, uh, the story goes that he sang to his fiance the, the, that night, and the reason it became a significant moment is because what they didn't realize at the time is that it would be the last opportunity he would ever have to sing to her. November 7th, 1907, became a very significant day in the history of Nakazari as well as Jesus Garcia. It started like any other day. He went to work and worked locomotives, worked the trains. Everything was normal as it had typically had been. But then uh, after lunch, around 2 o'clock p.m., a train shows up, and and the cars are out of order. Uh, The first two cars that are attached to the engine are filled with dynamite and detonators and fuses. And that was a direct violation against the regulations that the company had put in place. Those cars were supposed to be at the end of the train. But nobody really knows why they got switched or how they got switched, but there wasn't really much that they could do about it. And so uh, Jesus gets into the locomotive and he begins to drive this train out of the station. And as he leaves, some sparks fly from the chimney and catch the exterior of the cart um, onto some smoke, right? It kind of creates some embers. Well, this creates some concern. And so all the, the folks that are working on the train, they begin to come with, with water and they try to douse out the smoke, but they're unsuccessful. And eventually the exterior of those cars filled with all those explosives begins to catch fire. This became an incredibly tragic and urgent situation. Because where they were, if this train had in fact detonated where it currently was sitting, it would have led to cumulative explosions with the other surrounding uh, dynamite shops that were at the station, as well as some of the gas tanks that were nearby. And if that happened, it would destroy the majority of the town, killing thousands of people. 
Now, the, the way in which this needed to be dressed was also complicated because the tracks out of the town were at a slight elevation in an incline. And so you couldn't just set the, the train on its course. Somebody had to drive it. Otherwise, there was a fear that it would actually kind of lose its momentum and then drift back down that incline and still have a result of exploding within the town. And so somebody had to do something about it, and that somebody ended up being Jesus Garcia. He immediately ordered everybody to get off the train that was working, and he himself drove it out of the town. And he was, he was trying to get over this hill to a place where he then could hopefully leap to safety. And it was about, he was about 50 meters away from that spot at 2.20 p.m. when everything exploded. And it killed him instantly, as well as 12 other people were, that were in the nearby area. It was a massive explosion. It could be felt more than 10 miles away. Uh, a lot of the glass that was in the buildings in the town of Nakazari shattered when the explosion went off. Uh, twisted metal flew through the air. It was a violent explosion, and it saved thousands of lives. His self-sacrifice, his willingness to take it to a safe place, cost him everything but saved this town. And it was just a week before he would turn 24 years old. And, and it was a, such a tragic event, but within days, the town recognized him, and deservedly so, as a hero for what he had done. And shortly thereafter, the state congress of the town of Nakazari actually determined that November 7th would become a moment of significance, a, a landmark date for their history, and they actually decided to change their name of their town to Nakazari de Garcia. And to this day, that's what it's known to be, his name leaving a lasting imprint and impression on the identity of this town. Now, I'd never heard this story before. Uh, it, it was one that I, I stumbled across, and as I read it, I was just so compelled by the events and the details of the story and how it unfolded. And as I was thinking so much about it, I thought, well, what is it that compels us to these types of stories? And I think what it is is that it's a story of rescue, right? It, it's a story of sacrifice, somebody that's willing to set their interest aside for the good of others, willing to sacrifice their lives so that others can be saved. And I think we're all compelled to those types of stories because you and I somewhere deep down know we all need to be rescued. And so when we hear these stories of rescue, we can't help but be drawn to them. And, and obviously the, the elements of the story of Nakazari are applicable to what we've seen in Jonah and because we see how God has rescued a city, how he has saved and has exhibited this care and this concern for thousands. But but it's not just indicative of the story of Jonah and Nineveh, right? It's indicative of the Christian faith as a whole, isn't it? Story of one who's willing to give their life in order to save thousands. And it's a question or it's a, it's a story that I think will draw us into the importance of God's heart to rescue others. And that's the theme I want us to explore as we wrap up Jonah today. And I want us to do so by having one critical question in mind. Here's the question I want you to think about today. What is it that concerns you? And when I say the word concern, I don't necessarily mean things that you might be anxious about or things where you have apprehension or, or, or concern or worry, but just the things that drive you, the, the, the motivation, the thing that you put your energy to. What are your concerns in life? We're going to wrestle with that here a little bit later, and as we do, I believe it's going to lead us back to this phenomenal realization of God's heart of rescue. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 4. We got our last section to read through today. I can't wait. Now, here's what I want to do as we begin to read chapter 4. I mentioned last week the structure of chapter 4 is a little odd. It's a little different. And, and here's the best way I know how to explain it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, I like to do this. I like to poll the audience every once in a while. 
Show of hands, how many of you remember the show Lost and you actually watched it, you liked it, you enjoyed it? Anybody in here fans of Lost? Okay, thank you very much, I see you. How many of you did not watch the show Lost or you didn't like the show Lost and you never really cared anything about it? Okay, research has shown there are two types of viewers when it comes to Lost. There are those that can recognize greatness what's in front of them and others that can't recognize greatness if it falls in their lap. Now I know who's who in our church, okay? I loved Lost. I was obsessed with it. It was great. We had watch parties and everything. And, and part of the reason that I felt that this story was so compelling was because of the ways in which, the creative ways in which the storytellers would bring us on this journey. And what they would frequently do is they would use this tactic of a flashback or a flash forward or, yes, even a flash sideways. Don't ask me. Just watch the show, okay? And they would use all these different elements, and, and it would help create an understanding of the current reality, right? That, that's what a flashback does. It, it helps you see a current reality through a slightly different perspective. That's what we're about to read. Okay, 5 through 11 is a flashback. What we talked about last week was the final interaction between God and Jonah as it pertains to him saving of Nineveh. But we are now going to have a greater understanding of that exchange by this flashback that the author is going to take us on in verses 5 through 11. Okay, so that's what we're reading. If you have your Bibles, let's pick up in verse 5, and then we'll talk through the different elements of it. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. Okay, this, this flashback is fascinating because it helps us not just understand chapter 4, but chapter 4 is there to help us understand the whole story. And so we're going to look at these elements, but we're going to do so in a way that hopefully summarizes this journey we've been on for the last two and a half months going through the book of Jonah. So, so what is this flashback speaking to, right? Well, essentially what's happened is that Jonah has shared his message with Nineveh. He's, he's given them the warning of their city being overthrown, and now he's left the city, and he's sitting there, and he's waiting to see what's going to happen. Now, we know through earlier accounts, especially with what we read last week, that, that Jonah knew there was a chance God was going to save Nineveh, right? He said so. He goes, man, this is why I left. This is why I went to Tarshish to begin with. The reason I ran from you is because I knew you might do this, okay? So we know that, that Jonah was not ignorant of the fact that Nineveh might be spared, but we also know that he had a strong distaste for Nineveh, right? That he, did, he was not happy about the wickedness that was there. He was not happy about the threat that it posed to Israel. And so deep down, he likely wanted to see it destroyed. And so he is retreating to a certain place. He builds a little shelter, and now he's going to watch and wait and see what happens. He, he is likely looking for some sort of Sodom and Gomorrah type of destruction, right? That's what he's wanting. Essentially, what we have here in a very unique way is that Jonah's kind of made himself a little watch party, right? He's like, all right, let's see, what, let's see what's going to happen here. And so when we look through these details of this final passage, this little watch party of Jonah seeing what's going to happen in Nineveh, there's a dominant theme 
that resurfaces with tremendous emphasis in the next few verses. It's a theme that we've talked on a couple of times throughout the course of this series, but, but now it just hits us one, two, three, right after another in these final passages. And, and you see it with the word provided, right? Three different things God provided here that we just read about. And it starts with him providing a leaf. Now that word provided actually means to appoint, to assign, to count, to number. It's a really interesting Word And it's used regularly throughout the Old Testament, especially when trying to highlight different things that God does, especially things of great magnitude. Right? Like he, he orders or he numbers Abraham's descendants. Okay? That's, that's that type of word. Or we see this word often associated with God's creative power. One of my favorite uses of this word comes in Psalm 147, verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He, he provides the number of the stars. He appoints He orders the number of the stars. He knows each of them by name. That's amazing. Stop and think about that for a moment. Okay, yesterday uh, we had a chance to celebrate my son's eighth birthday. His actual birthday is tomorrow, so happy birthday, James. Excited for you. Um, he, He had a great party yesterday, and anytime it's party day, you wake up early and you open all of mom and dad's presents first thing. Okay, before you even put food in your mouth, brush your teeth, that's like the first thing that happens. And so he got a chance to open some gifts, and one of the gifts that, that we got him this year was one of those little Echo Dot uh, kind of Amazon thing. We all know Amazon's taken over the world, right? And so we just invite it into our home. Might as well just embrace it. But it's, it's this kid-friendly speaker system that, that you can interact with, and so you can, you can play music, you can ask Alexa questions and things like that. I feel like sometimes Alexa is the fifth member of our family. We talk to her so much. And so we had the speaker set up, and at one point I asked the question yesterday, Alexa, how many stars are there? And she said, no one knows how many stars there are. But, but we can estimate that we can see about 9,960 from Earth. And I loved that description. Number one, it's fascinating that we can see that many from Earth. But then for her to say, no one knows but the Lord does, right? He has not just provided them. It's not like he just scattered them. He assigned them. He appointed them. He ordered them. He knows every single one by name. That's what this word means. When we see this word provided, it elicits this divine creativity, right? This is a significant word. It's God's sovereignty working itself out all over again. And we've seen that theme of God's sovereignty consistently hit on through this series, right? And there are several things that God has provided, several things that God has appointed throughout the course of this, of this narrative. Now, this word in particular is used four distinct times through this story. It starts with God appointed a great fish. But now at the conclusion of the chapter, we get three uh, successive things that God is going to provide, and it starts with a leaf. God provided, he appointed a leaf, and it grew up and it gave shade to Jonah. Now, that, that gives us a little bit of an insight, right, that obviously where Jonah was watching, even if he had a shelter, it didn't provide significant amount of coverage, that there was a level of heat that he needed to escape. And as Texans, those of you that live here, we can all empathize with this, right? We've all been out on that hot summer day, and the moment you find shade, it's a relief, right? And it says Jonah was very happy about this plant. But, but this is way more significant, much more profound than just us being happy when we find shade or central heat and air and all those different things we long for in a Texas summer. This is not just escaping heat. This is a, 
a miraculous development. And we know that it's miraculous because of what's said a little bit later in, the, in, in chapter 4. It's not as if Jonah was sitting out on the hillside for six months watching the grass grow and then eventually a leaf got big enough to provide him shade. It happened overnight. And so what Jonah recognizes here is not just that he's getting alleviation from the sun, but that God has done it. God has provided this to him. This is once again another example of God's unexpected mercy in his care for Jonah. And it has created great joy. And so we see this in the first part of the provision. It's created joy in Jonah's life. He's grateful for what God has done. But then we have this really odd turn of events. As soon as God provides a leaf, God provides a worm. And I'm sorry, like when you read that verse, does anybody just stop and like pick up their Bible and be like, what am I reading, right? Like God's sending worms now? Like is this really happening? But he has assigned a worm to eat this plant so that it can wither. Now, that's fairly significant as well. As one scholar I was reading pointed out, what we see through the course of Jonah's narrative is that God will appoint, yes, a great fish as well as a worm. And so whether it's significant or insignificant, there is nothing in God's creation that he doesn't oversee, nothing that escapes his sovereignty. And I love that because it's a reminder to you and me in a very subtle way that if God can use a worm, I guarantee you he can use you, right? You can. Nobody is insignificant. And too often we tell ourselves that. We don't see the value. We don't see the worth. And we, we lose that side of how God sees us. And we need to understand no one in this room is insignificant. He can use and will use all of us. But he's used this worm to, to create some destruction for the plant. And now the plant withers. And it dies. And, and obviously that would create some form of frustration. God, why would you give me this one day just to take it away the next? I'm confused by what you're doing. But to add to the confusion, it's not just that God removes the leaf. What does he do? He sends, he provides the third thing here that this time this word is being used, a scorching east wind. Now this is a pretty important term to recognize because it's going to give us insight to Jonah's reaction that we've already read. That this is more than just it got hot. A, a scorching east wind was known to be a uh, Sirocco. I think I said that correctly. Sirocco. And I'd never heard this term either. But this is an intense weather development that creates such uncomfortable uh, heat and a presence that it actually feels um, uh, that most people immediately have this strong displeasure, distaste. They, they go through depression. They have neuro neurological side effects. through it. This is a very torturous thing for Jonah to experience, which is what leads to his disappointment later. So it's a drastic change of events in just a few moments, right? And you can sense that this would be difficult for Jonah to understand, but th this watch party at this point has gone terrible, okay? This is not what he intended. This is the equivalent of having people over and you run out of food and the air sea goes out and now your team is losing. Like, it's just a terrible experience for him, Okay? So the question becomes, why is this included in chapter 4? What, what is it teaching us? Why is God appointing these things? Why is he assigning these things? Why is he providing these things? What, what are we learning here? Well, to me, the key to answering that question and to understanding the significance of this part of Jonah comes in verse 6. God appoints a leaf. Why? To ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy. 
That phrase, ease his discomfort, drives at the heart of the theme of the whole book. The word ease here is more than just alleviate. It's a word that means to deliver, to save, to rescue. God is wanting to rescue Jonah in this moment. And to to add to the significance of this phrase, it's not just um, discomfort in the sense that he's, he's bothered by the weather. The word discomfort here is that word that we refer to over and over again. It's that Hebrew word ra'ah, which is the word for evil or wickedness. It's the same word that is used to describe Nineveh in chapter 1. So we can read a verse like that, and it doesn't really hit us. right? God provides a leaf to ease Jonah's discomfort. Okay, he was hot. He needed to be alleviated. But when you read it in the Hebrew, it leaps off the page. God appointed this thing so that he could rescue from evil, so that he could save from destruction, so that he could ease discomfort. And when he rescues, it leads to joy. Why is he having this thing transpire? Why are we flashing back to him this moment? Is because it reveals, once again, this object lesson of what God was trying to do with Nineveh. God had appointed Jonah, sent Jonah so that he could rescue Nineveh. That he could save them from evil. That he could alleviate their discomfort. And that would bring joy. But Jonah didn't want it. Right? Jonah's heart wasn't ready for that and we've seen that time and time again through the course of this narrative that he wants to experience God's rescue for himself but he was not willing to extend it to others and so when God removed that rescue the the misery that Jonah begins to to experience is an insight to what Nineveh would experience if God didn't rescue them and so God is trying to teach them a lesson and so part of that pain is so that Jonah can get a greater understanding of God's heart for rescue which leads us to kind of this overlap with what we had last week, right? You get to see this interaction. Now, listen, it's not the same conversation, though almost the exact same language is used. Last week, it was when he saw what happened in Nineveh. This is all about the leaf and the plant, but we see the despair with, with Jonah again. I'm de- I would rather die than live. And so God asked him, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Is this good for you to feel this way? Now, that exchange stopped earlier. We didn't see anything continue from that when we looked at the passage last week in the first four verses. This week, we see Jonah's response. God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is. Absolutely. I'd rather die than live than deal with this. And you can can read into that. That's not just craziness because he's hot. He understood what God was doing. He understood the lesson that was coming, and this was a painful experience for him. He said, man, I, I don't want any more of this. Now, we, we, we went into great lengths last week to discuss those moments of despair where we find ourselves wishing to die rather than live and the weightiness of that reality. And we, we talked about this question of is it right or is it good for us to be angry? And so I'm, I'm not going to delve back into that today. Uh, but I would, I would highly encourage you that if you have the opportunity, go back and listen to last week's message because that's an incredibly important thing to consider. How do we handle that? What I want us to see today is Jonah's response. When, he, when he's confronted with God in this particular situation, he says, yeah, it is okay for me to feel this way. And once again, that, that's the final word that we get from Jonah in this story. And it reveals his stubbornness and his inconsistency. And so, How do you and I, as we wrap up this series, how do we view Jonah? How how do you think of this guy at this point? I mean, there are these glimpses of things that 
that make us drawn to him and things that we can't quite understand. We, we see all these different elements of his heart and his exchange with God. So, so how are we to understand? Look, let me tell you how I, I view Jonah at this point. I kind of look at him on two levels. On one hand, I'm grateful that Jonah is in the scriptures. I'm grateful that we see somebody like Jonah with all of his imperfections, with all of his problems, with all of his stubbornness and all of his inconsistency. Because it should be a reminder to each of us that the scriptures are not filled with miraculous people. They're filled with broken people who experience miraculous things. And that should be comforting to all of us. Because I can empathize with Jonah. Can't you? Moments when I've been disobedient. Moment, moments when I have run away from what the Lord has asked me to do. Moments where I haven't had the sort of sensitivity and compassion that maybe I should have. And I'm grateful that I can see that that is natural and that is part of our struggle in growing in our faith. So I'm glad that the scriptures are filled with people like Jonah. At the same time, he is not an example. He's not someone we aspire to. He's not one that we can use as an excuse in our own life to rationalize and justify our own stubbornness and our own inconsistencies. Right? We don't want to find ourselves on our knees saying to the Lord, God, but, but Jonah did it. Right? Like That's not going to come across well. We need to aspire for something greater. We need to aspire for something that is more consistent, that isn't as stubborn. Right, so Jonah's not an example. He has served as a, a bit of a cautionary tale for each of us. And so we need to be mindful of that. So the question this morning then is, what created this conflict between Jonah and God? What, why this, this resistance between the two? Why was Jonah struggling with this stubbornness? What, where had things gone wrong? And that's where those final few verses really give us an insight into Jonah's heart and really a summary of the whole book. The issue was a difference in their concerns. Or what does God say? Now, you've been concerned about this plant. Something you didn't work for. Something you didn't intend to. And you're, you're worried about this thing? And, and should I not then be concerned about the important city, the great city of Nineveh? It has 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left. I shouldn't be concerned for them. We see that the conflict here was a difference in their concerns. But what, is, what does that mean? That the word that we have here that's being offered to us is, is kind of insufficient in the translation that uses the word concern. A, a more complete understanding of this term would be to see or to have sorrow or pity for something to the point that you would be willing to spare it from destruction. You'd want to extend mercy to it. You would have a deep love and, and sorrow and pity for what it is that they're about to experience. That is a genuine concern that God has that Jonah doesn't. See, Jonah has desired his mercy, but only to his own benefit, not to the benefit of others. Their concerns have not aligned. Which leads me to the question for us this morning. What are you concerned with? Right, if we were to talk to people in your circle, right? if we were to talk to your colleagues at work, your family at home, your peers, your friends, fellow classmates, whoever it may be, what would they say about you? What would they say drives you? What would they say are your concerns? Where are your interests? Where's your energy? Where's your time? Where's your devotion? Where is it being channeled at this point in your life? Another way to ask you this morning is when you lay at bed at night and you, you stay awake, what is it that's keeping you awake? What are those things that you wrestle with? And the way in which I want you to ask yourself this question is to, to then follow it up with thinking, those concerns, am I wrestling with them because of what they might mean for my comfort or what they might mean for God's glory? 
Why am I concerned with them? Because a lot of times we can find ourselves driven by our health, driven by our success, driven by our image, driven by our parenting, and all these things, but really at the end of the day, the reason we're anxious about them or concerned about them is because of what it might mean for our comfort as opposed to what it might mean for God's glory. And that was the difference with Jonah. He was concerned more with his comfort than the glory of God. And that's what needs to shift, not just in his heart, but in our own. So how do we do that? Well, one of the things that I believe that this book teaches us is that the way in which God is often most glorified is through his story of rescue. Right? What, what is God revealing here about his heart and his concern? What is it that he is saying? He's saying, you've been concerned about a plant. I'm concerned about the city of Nineveh that's filled with more than 120,000 people, a city I created, a people that I care about who don't know their right from their left. What God is saying in one of the central themes of the book of Jonah is that God's heart breaks for the lost. Does yours. Does your heart break for the lost? And a way that we can ask ourselves that question is when was the last time you spoke to someone about God's rescue plan for their life? Our answer to that question will help us identify just how concerned we really are about the lost. And if our heart breaks the way that God wants it to break. And that's what we need. We need to be a people. The lostness around us, around us need us to speak to a heart that breaks for what they're going through. And hear me, Jonah gives us a pretty important understanding that there is a difference between obedience and genuine concern. Right? He was obedient, eventually. He did what God asked him to do, his heart hadn't changed. And if I would tell you, if I could just share a word of testimony with you this morning, that's one of the main takeaways for me as I've studied this book. Right? I, I know, and I've told you before, God's worked on me, when, and I feel as if I'm beginning to turn a corner and desiring a greater level of obedience to the things that he's asking me to do, and I'm, I'm working towards that end, but I'm learning that it is not enough just to be obedient. Times that I've had a chance to go and share with others about God's rescue and his plan, a lot of times what is motivating me in those moments is a desire for success to occur here or stories to be able to tell later. And not always driven by a genuine, heartfelt brokenness that people are lost. They don't know their right from their left. That should grieve us. We should hit our knees saying, God, let my heart break for what breaks yours. And that's what God's concern is. His concern is not just for some people, but for all people to understand his beautiful plan of rescue. And he needs each of us as individuals to embrace that sort of concern. And he needs that not just from individuals, but from the church. Right? We as a church, we don't need to spend time and energy being concerned about a library or about a logo or about a website or about the type of music or the structure on Sunday. Our heart needs to break for the 10,000 that live within two and a half miles around this church who would openly admit they don't believe in God. That's what needs to break our heart. That's what needs to define us as a church. That's what needs to compel us. And so we must hit our knees day after day and say, Lord, let my concerns and your concerns be one. Help align me with what breaks your heart. Help me see as you see. And when we pray that prayer, it's going to lead us to this God of rescue. That's the ultimate theme for Jonah. 
He is a God who rescues. And the main takeaway you look at, not just chapter 4 with these final verses, but the whole story is that God wants to rescue not just some people, not just a few people, all people. So those folks that we have in our life or in our culture that we detest, folks that we are fearful of, folks that we, that we maybe hate, folks that we just don't want to associate with, you know, we need to be concerned for them because God is. <laughs> he wants to rescue all of them. And so as you read through chapter 4, and I begin to think through, how do we, how do we summarize this? What, what final word do we need to have after reading this book from Jonah? What, what, what's the main takeaway? I can't deviate from this message of rescue. And so that's how I want to close this morning. I just want to speak very quickly a reminder of God's plan of rescue. And I want us to consider it from three different angle points. I want us to never forget that God has rescued us. God wants to rescue us, and he will. I want you all to know, God has rescued you. No matter what it is that we face in this life, we can see that the fulfillment of his rescue has been fully identified in the person of Jesus Christ. Right here we have the story of this one man willing to sacrifice his life in order to save all of humanity. And with this Jesus, we find an ability to have all of our brokenness taken away. He takes away all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness. And with his death on the cross, we have mercy. We have forgiveness. We have hope that death itself has been defeated. And so no matter what you face, never question the fact that God has rescued you. He's given you Christ. And so that invitation remains it's, it's here today, it's here tomorrow, it never is taken from you. And if you've never received that gift of his rescue, then let not one more day go by before you embrace it. God has rescued you, and we can stand assured of that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I also want you to know that he wants to rescue you. Maybe you've put your faith in Christ many years ago, maybe you never really have, but, but make no mistake, God desires you to experience his rescue. He wants you to experience his mercy. And so whatever you face today, whatever storm, whatever struggle, whatever persecution, whatever angst, whatever burden you carry, understand he wants to deliver you from that. He wants to ease your discomfort. He wants to save you from hardship. He wants to rescue you from evil. That's his heart. Now, we need to have the wisdom and the maturity in terms of how that might unfold. Sometimes we can pray for that rescue. It can happen instantaneously. And he removes it from us. And we can marvel at this unexpected mercy that springs up overnight. But sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes we have to wait three days before we see the fulfillment of this hope. Some of us may have to carry that desire till our final breath. But make no mistake, whether it comes quickly or slowly, God's heart is to rescue you which is what leads us to this final promise, he will. We have an assurance that we sung about earlier today. Our hope is not meant for this world. It is meant for the world that is to come. God will absolutely save and redeem the fulfillment of this hope only is seen when God sends Jesus to return and make all things new. 
that moment when we get to see the transformation from garden to city, the new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth, where we finally get to experience every tear, every sorrow, every pain being removed as we get to be home. The greatest prayer we can pray is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because that's when all of it gets to be fulfilled. We serve a God who rescues. He has rescued you. He wants to rescue you. And he will. And so we need to be a church that doesn't just study a book for two and a half months. We need to be a church that that embraces this teaching, takes it to heart, and lets his name imprint itself on our identity and who we are. We need to have our heart break for what breaks his. We need to see the beauty of this rescue. So do you hear him? He's calling you. He's calling us. He's spoken to us. He has appointed us. May his, his concerns be our concerns. And may all of us, then as one church, may we rise up, may we go, and may we tell of this beautiful rescue. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm humbled to even hold these truths in my hand to carry this message of hope in our hearts. Father, we we are unworthy of your rescue. And yet, God, in your grace and in your mercy, you extend it to us. So, Father, I pray that for every single one of us that are in this room today, that we would be reminded that no matter what we face, no matter what trial, no matter what circumstance, your mercy is greater. Your love is all-sufficient. And you call us unto yourselves. So may we, may we run to you. May we fall into your arms and trust you. And may we be a church that is able to look beyond the things that can so easily entangle, the things that can so easily distract. And may we declare to the world around us the hope that you have through Jesus. May our heart break for the lostness around us. And may we be a church that can rise up and go and speak of all that you've done through Jesus. That's our hope. That's a prayer. May it not just be a series. God, I, I yearn that it would be more than a sermon, more than a message for a few minutes on a Sunday morning, God, that it would be a lifestyle we all embrace, and only you can achieve that within us. And so here we are. We give ourselves to you. Let your mercy wash over us, God, as we sing of what you've done. May we not just use it in a momentary circumstance, but may we surrender to the fact that your mercy is all we need and the message we must always declare to your glory, to your praise, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.